Welcome to Season 5 of the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In this season, we're exploring relational spirituality, which is not rooted in character formation and instead in immediate relational engagement with God. It is a relational, mystical spirituality encouraging people to enter deeply into living and loving in relation to their own self, others, and God. We can't think of any better venture to give our lives to than this, and I'm sure you'd agree with us. In seeking to establish a relational spirituality on the foundation of our value for intimacy with God, yeah, there's an interplay between understanding God as transcendent, understanding God as universal cosmic presence, and understanding that God draws near in person to speak and act. In this conversation, we pick up on a quote from Sarah Bessie on Facebook, which contrasts the, 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 the pitfalls of the charismatic and Pentecostal experience in meetings with the kind of day-to-day life where God is experienced just through the tapestry of life. We really note in this that there is no sense of the divine presence, the divine numinous presence taking place in either of these. And, and really this is critical to developing a relational spirituality that's centered on the value for intimacy with God and that's centered on the practice of the relational presence of God. We rely on your generous support to continue this podcast and the rest of our work. Please consider making a contribution towards the work of the Urban Mystic. There's a link to follow in the show notes to PayPal below. Please don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment on your favorite listening platform. So, hey, Tim, it's good to be chatting again. This has been a, you know, it's been a really interesting season so far in terms of, of what we've been digging into and some, some surprising things for me as we've, as we've dug down and to switch metaphors quickly as we've kind of swum around in some very interesting pools of thinking and wondering. And some of the things that emerge really are, are somewhat surprising. And also in some ways very familiar. And, and that's been a very, yeah, it's been an interesting kind of sort of seesaw around the human to human and the human to divine relating experiences and seeing them sort of revolve on some axis. And there's, and there's some very real, I find some very helpful almost mirroring between the two or at least just providing fertile ground to be able to talk through like what could they all look like, starting with the human and moving human to divine? And so that's that's been you know it's been lots and lots of fun, and we've been talking through our values, and we're sort of wanting not to strike out away from the values, but just spend a few more sessions digging a little further, if not under the specific name of one of those three values that we've identified recently, at least just move around within the area surrounding them and see what comes up as we talk about a couple of concepts. So we were talking about chatting about intimacy tonight and what that might actually mean. And then we also got to chatting just now around oh, this interesting formulation, this paradox. And, I, and I'm going to let this author do, do, do better justice than my words can to kick off. And, and then we'll talk a little bit about this. So Sarah Bessie is a name that some of you might know, someone who I have, I've read a bit of, but I have a bit more of an arm's length connection with and serious, serious respect and esteem for, for her and her writing and her life and witness and the work that she's done. And I came to know of her through Rachel Held Evans, who's an author who's very close to my heart and the work that she did and and so i follow 
Sarah Bessie online and sort of just just stay in touch with where she's at and the work she's doing and 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 the work that uh, that she's busy with uh, with other authors and other thinkers etc and she's getting ready for a, for a big conference coming up and so I've started to see more and more stuff in line with that coming out on on her Facebook and Instagram and all those sort of things feeds and she posted something this morning that really struck me because it echoed a thought that I've been wrestling with and I've been wanting to chat with you about around this paradox. And I'm talking in circles, but I'm going to land it just now with, with her words of this post and we'll talk about it. But it's something I've really been wrestling with and I think it might set us up, I'm hoping, to take aim at talking a bit more about intimacy tonight and what is intimacy and how does intimacy exist between two persons and probably starting in the human to human and then moving on from that to wonder you know what are the what are the natural connections and how can we talk about intimacy with god what might that look like so this interesting paradox thing for me is a question of on the one side the idea of this this cosmic unfathomable God who is kind of bigger and broader and and wider than, than we can ever wrap our minds around and has to do with kind of the creative and sustaining aspect of God, God kind of the almighty, you know, this the powerful deity being that brings the world into existence and keeps it going, etc., and is able to relate on broad terms to, you know, millions and billions of people all at the same time. Potentially it's 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 very weird to talk about personhood in that picture where God is this ever-present reality. And we've been trying to tease some of that out in terms of what is presence from personhood and what is presence just by aspect of being a deity who's kind of in and of everything and, and all that sort of stuff. And so anyway, so this is this is what Sarah Bessie posted this morning, and I thought we could just chat through it quickly. For me, it's a really helpful and very clear depiction of something important. And there are a couple of other trails in there that I'll point out that we won't necessarily pick up on. But it's a very clear way of, I think, present, presenting one part of the paradox. I don't want to say one side, because you, you'll hear hopefully very soon that I'm not trying to juxtapose the two against each other so much as just recognize the paradox as they sit in tension with each other. So it's not a, you know, one size, one side wins over the other kind of thing. It's, it's just, a, I think they exist together and, and I'm wrestling with how to, to kind of acknowledge both. And anyway, so Sarah Bessie's words, one of the damaging things prophetic in adverted commas, charismatic culture did, was to set God apart from our ordinary lives as particular experiences by invitation or appointment only. So we come to associate feeling connected with the Holy Spirit with these big emotive worship experiences or sermons that make our hair stand on end or experiences with the supernatural or secretive, I'm on the inside, prophetic stuff I'm not saying those things are bad, but they are incomplete. Because the truth is that you're already connected with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is with you always, even to the end of the age, right? 
And so I think the question for us now is how are we cultivating an awareness of the conversation already happening? Look in your life as it stands for those moments when you sense God's joy or presence, however surprising. When are the moments when you feel most alive and engaged? Where are you seeing God's goodness or invitation? I often say that the Spirit is hiding in plain sight in our right now lives. I've connected with the Holy Spirit through herons and on the pathways of the neighborhood, in reading stories with my kids and in Marvel movies, in poetry and long nights of pain, in food and at protests. It's a both adventure and a daily rhythm of companionship now. This is one of the reasons that I that I that I enjoy her writing because she just she works with words so incredibly well and is very clear about what she's saying to her. And so I also want to just say up front that this is not a <laughs> pick someone out of a hat and have a bash at them online either. Um, it it really encapsulated part of what I've been thinking about at the moment, which is often when if I talk to somebody about God or personhood they move back to the, yeah, but but God is everywhere and is right here and right now. And how can you talk about experiencing God or not experiencing God? How can you talk about intimacy with God? And on the other end of that coin or the side of that coin must then be non-intimacy with God because the spirit is everywhere and is all around. And all it is, is your awareness of cultivating. It's just, it's your I think it's it's the intention and the effort at which with which you apply to cultivating the awareness of God's presence. That's all it is. And so to that I go absolutely fantastic. Like a hundred percent I'm with you. A hundred percent I'm with you. And I've seen the benefit of that in my life, and I've seen the benefit of that approach, and I've seen that benefit people. Um, and you know, there are a couple of things in here that are that are yeah, a little bit—I don't know what I want to say—off-putting or just. I think it posits a very negative culture potentially around God. You know, talking about prophetic charismatic culture or. I'm on the inside prophetic stuff. So if we just swept that off the table for a second and said, we're talking about just having a, a balanced approach to God where you just need to be aware that God is with you all the time and that that's really important, I'd say, absolutely. And I think there is this cosmic element to God, this unfathomableness about God that is very difficult to tie down just in specific manifestations of personhood, it's 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 too much. But I'm also with her when she uses the word incomplete. Because the other part of this paradox for me are these experiences, are these moments of meeting, of connection, of personhood. There are two different things, and we've talked about this a little bit before. And I'm wrestling with being presented at least with the idea. And I don't 100% think this is what Sarah Bessie is trying to do in her work, but but it's out there, the idea of it's one or the other. You either commit 
that God is only a person that shows up and talks to you and that's all there is. And I think, you know, that, that can sometimes go a bit weird and culty or you have to sit on the other side and God is with you all the time. And you just have to be aware of that. And I think it just helped crystallize for me that I'm wanting to say, no, I have, I've got a foot in both of those camps and I don't think yet, I don't think that I am fence sitting because of that. I don't think I'm compromising a position by saying I'm with both of those. I think I can maintain a connection. No, that's not the right language. I can maintain my acknowledgement of this cosmic, you know, like you know, all those kind of simple things people throw out, right? Like God is bigger than you and bigger than you can tell, blah, 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 blah. Absolutely, 100%. The, the spirit is huge and I've also have I have moments and surprising moments sometimes, but I also want to be very careful and very intentional with my energy and highlight the other part of this paradox, which is God does display God's self, this unfathomable largeness in personhood moments, in experiences. And it's not necessarily because that's another thing she does here is tie some of that in with the church, which I think is another thing that's worth just another thread that's just worth teasing out. So I'm not necessarily saying that that's because then it has to happen in a sermon or a worship experience, you know, it's also, we've put a lot of work into that in terms of like, what is that and what isn't that? But God is experienced in personhood, not only as a, as a, as a general awareness specific thing. And Hey, I don't know, somehow who knows if this ever managed to come across, Sarah, if it ever comes across your desk, man, I would love to have that conversation with you. I'd love to dig further into what you're saying here and how you understand that and whether you would kind of go with me on this or not. And it'd be lovely to to talk that through. So I want to be careful. I'm not trying to put any words in your mouth or anything. It's just such a helpful piece of writing to try and help me crystallize my thoughts. So that's my thoughts. That's the paradox. On the one hand, not in opposition, there is the big, big God who is all-knowing and unknowable and, and huge and bigger than me. And on the other hand, there is the person of God that approaches and offers intimacy and connection. And that goes hand in hand. It has to with moments of absence and presence because that's how intimacy works. Um, and somehow those two exist in this wonderful, glorious, dis uncomfortable, disconcerting paradox. Um, and I don't feel like I want to settle yet for either side. And I want to keep striving. And so I want to shine my torch on the one side, not the other. I think there's some wonderful people doing great work on that other part. And that's where I feel you and I are wanting to talk about what that might be and what that might be in intimacy. So Jeepers, okay, that that was a that was a long go at that. Um Tim, <laughs> any thoughts in response or contradictions or other ideas or have at it. I'll be quiet for a while. Listening to this the, what you've what you've read and just having it in front of me, I want to agree with the first bit and then disagree with the second bit. I want to agree with the critique of the prophetic charismatic culture because I don't think it's a relational spirituality that is evidence or, or or results from that. And I think that the spirituality that we find, like the third way of charismatics returning to as they critique this culture, is that they're returning to a 
to the spiritual disciplines and the spiritual practices that I believe are, are vital that really lead to genuine character formation, but at the same time are non-personal in the sense that they do not have in mind personal engagement with God. So I want to agree with that. I think that this this critique of the prophetic charismatic culture is spot on. I think that what it does away with, which it shouldn't do away with, is immediate engagement. So I, I both agree with that as a statement and disagree with it because I think it's the same culture that I'm that I'm I'm critiquing, right? Or that we're critiquing. So so I want to agree with that critique and say that's what we're critiquing, that's what we're trying to unpack, that's what we're wanting to offer an alternative to. I think the alternative that is being put forward in this passage is not the alternative I agree with. Let, let me unpack that a little bit more. As this is put forward, it's the moments where we feel most alive and engaged is, is what's in that passage. Where are you seeing God's goodness or invitation? And then it basically correlates that as in hiding in plain sight in our lives, that it's connected with do we feel... Do we see the beauty around us? Do we feel the love around us? Do we feel the joy of life, etc., etc.? So here, there's no sense of personhood in any of this. It's in my experience of the tapestry of life and the goodness of life that I go, there is God. That's where the Spirit is. And I think that's, that, yeah, the Spirit would celebrate that kind of stuff and possibly be found in that. But to turn goodness into God is to basically say that there's nothing personal in there. Because now that's that's reduced to my appreciation. Do I look at a sunset and feel, oh my goodness, God is a wonderful creative artist? That's not an experience of a personal personhood. That's an appreciation of sunrise. When I see the poor being fed by someone and I go, oh, look, God is there. Oh, it's wonderful God's there. Uh, yeah, God might be around. But God is not reduced to goodness in that sense. I, I feel that we've we've basically gone... We've taken goodness, whether it's character, activities, or experiences, and we've projected that, and we've taken one O out and landed up. We've moved from the good to God. Where is God? Where there is good. <laughs> Where there is good, there is God. And I don't think that's the same thing as encountering a individual who has will, purpose, activity, who draws near to engage. There's three things that I'd throw out and put on the table. God is transcendent. God does not exist. Creation exists. God does not exist. God exists in being and becoming, and then God uncreates or ceases to exist in receding. And I think I think that's a whole there's a whole philosophical layer there to work with. The second thing is is I throw on the table that God is universal presence. God is ever presence everywhere, everywhere, to everyone. There's almost a thin veil between where God is and where God isn't. But that's not to say that God is personally involved in every situation or personally involved in every activity or personally involved in every interaction. You know, it's as background, support, enabler, creator, and sustainer. And then the third thing I throw out is that God draws near in person. God is personal. Those three are very important to preserve because it's, yeah, God is transcendent. Okay, that's a great statement to make. But that doesn't tell us anything about relating to God. Oh, well, that transcendent present is also the universal presence in and through creation. Oh, okay, cool. Well, again, that gives me nothing to hinge anything on. I can't reach the transcendent, and the universal presence completely eludes my grasp because it's too big for me to lay hold of. And neither it relates to me. 
but both are there in the background of reality, or at least as universal presence in the background of reality, as transcendent beyond. Both are, are unreachable by to me. When, when I speak of the personhood of God, when the attention of the divine is placed upon me, there's a very different interaction. When God draws near in person to speak and act, there's a very different thing that takes place. And I think that's, that's not being recognized in this as a statement. That, that, that fills an entire episode, I think, unpacking those, those three. But you've, but you've positioned them very succinctly, which is very helpful. I can refer to, to a good old author named Rudolf Alto who died in the 1936-1937, so somewhere around then. But he wrote a really good book on the idea of the holy, and, and, and he speaks of this. There's a different experience of the transcendent drawing near. There's a numinous presence is the word that he uses. And then he's got a whole bunch of analyzing. So what do people experience when this presence draws near? And he unpacks that. But some of what comes out in terms of the qualities of it is that, that silence is a reaction to this numinous presence that it's very natural to fall silent in the presence of God in the same way that you'd fall, you'd fall silent if a lion walks into your bedroom. There's, there's the language of, of saying that, that, that when God becomes present in this way, there's a lot of language of darkness and light that plays out. But it's almost like, you know, the high, dam- high dynamic range type darkness? When you walk into the light, you become blinded. If you walk out from a dark place and if you walk from a bright place into the darkness everything falls dark but then there's another kind of darkness if you're in a dark area and a light shines in you you could have been seeing fine but then you stop seeing fine everything that's around you because the light overlights everything i want to say overshadows everything but that's not the right word and and that language that a lot of mystics use around the light of god basically turns reality into a darkness that loses focus because the light is so strong and overpowering and then similarly there's often language of of emptiness or empty distance that takes place as well the sense of there's this vastness a vast empty distance between this presence that is drawn near and given attention to us because it is so beyond us so far away from us and yet in drawing near to us in that way, that's what shows us how distant this presence is. And at the same time, this presence covers that distance in a sense that, that that starts giving us a sense of the universality of the presence of God and at the same time the transcendence of God. So there's a lot of things in 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 the language of the of of this this tremendous mystery or the language of this overpowering mystery or the language of this this frightening mystery or the language of this fascinating presence there's lots of language that gets tied to this that when i when i see a statement like the one that we've just said yeah you know where do you where do you find god oh well do i see god in a sunrise that's not the same thing there's no reference here that speaks to what the mystics speak about the numinous presence of god when I read a statement like this, and I think that's what's missing. On the other hand, I think that's often missing in charismatic and prophetic culture, and I think that's often because the hype, the the constructivism of the setting, all of that gets in the way and creates a particular dynamic. And there I think intuition is often leading and being misused and being put forward as though intuition to be intuitive and to intuitively read someone within the conditionalism of that environment and to layer that intuition with the religious language of Christianity and, and Judaism is to then speak as though it's prophetic, but it's not the same thing. So 
sorry, I mean, I've, I've thrown out a lot there just in, in terms of response. No, no, that's good. That's good. So let me give some of that back to you and then just, just see perhaps if we switch language just a little bit, because then I think we might be saying different things, but I don't think so, but let's see. So I would look at a sunset and see God, but I would want to be clear with within myself in what is happening in that moment. I use the language. I look at a sunset and I have an experience of God or I, or I see God in that. But I'm not trying to say I see the personhood of God looking back at me, right? So that's partly what I hear you just, just delineating carefully is to look at a sunset and say you see God, i.e. you are seeing the person of God looking back at you, is incorrect. But when I, Steve, personally, I'm not talking theoretically, but when I, if I look at something like that and I suddenly feel moved, I have a sense of a connection with God, of the being behind that, let me say. That's what I'm importing into that moment. Sometimes that's what I'm extracting from that moment. It's as if I look at a, a beautiful picture and I experience the beautiful picture and I know that that is a beautiful picture, and I recognize it for being an artwork, right, let's say. And I'm also aware that there is a human artist behind the artwork. And I can appreciate that, and it can remind me of the human artist. But how does it remind me as well? Does it remind me because other people have told me about this artist, and I have an appreciation of them secondhand? Do I have an appreciation of them because I've met them once or twice or three times maybe? And there I draw a sense of importance out of the artwork and my connection with the artist. Or do I look at it and I know the artist behind it because I know the artist themselves well and I have a close, intimate connection with that artist. And so the art is never that far removed from the artist but they are completely separate things and so if you then look at the poor thing is that a sense of a connection if we use the language of kingdom perhaps we can see the kingdom of god let's say extending or happening in that moment of reaching out to other people and caring for other people does that remind one of the monarch, let's say, the deity behind that particular kingdom. And again, similar kind of pattern of thinking. Is that not what you're saying? Because that's kind of how I appreciate that sort of ever-presentness is, uh, yes, I'm aware of the thing that I might not be directly experiencing right now, but there's a echo or a reminder or whatever. But it's important to be clear in terms of what that is. My immediate response to jump in is to say Emperor's New Clothes. Honestly, like like two people can stand next to each other, see the sunset. One goes sees one person says, I see a cool sunset, the other person says, How amazing God is to produce something like that. To appreciate good arts and to go good art exists, inspiration exists, inspiration equals God is 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 an abstraction. And it's to project that abstract that abstraction as though it's God, because what? Where does God exist in my appreciation of the sunsets and in me presupposing that there's a God? What if I don't presuppose that there's a God? I can never see that God. 
what if I wasn't raised within Christianity? What if I was born on a, a different side of the planet to a different faith? I'd be looking at that sunset and I'd be projecting what? The religious belief that I have onto that in one form or another. That's not the same thing as saying some, the divine was present to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a further distinction. That's helpful. So I am basing the response to the sunset of some sort of experiential connection with the, you know, it starts to get complex quickly, the, the cosmic being that presents itself in a person, that there is that link as opposed to starting on the one side and working through the artwork back to the artist, if that makes sense. But the statement is, as given as you read it, collapses the divine into those kind of things and basically says, if you can appreciate the divine in that, then you're connected with God. And I go, no, I can appreciate good music. That doesn't mean I'm connected with a particular musician. Sure, sure, sure. I, I th yeah, I, I think that's one way to read it. I'm not entirely sold that that's the exact intention, but I think it's a reasonable guess that that is it. And I'm with you. The two, the, that collapsing absolutely and that's where it's really really important to be very clear uh, and I think that's why I'm trying to walk through those threads in terms of clarity but what you're adding is a is a very significant or pointing out is a very significant thread there in terms of what is it and at what end and so then let me reflect that so there I hear you so yeah appreciating the art is not the same as knowing the artist as you say Doing good works is not the same as knowing the person who um, asks for those good works to be done. And so if that is in fact a collapsing, yeah, then then absolutely not, because that's not in that's not any kind of relational framework whatsoever, other than what you are importing into that moment and claiming, as you say, because then the sunrise is not God. It doesn't mean that it can't. I think that's what I was trying to point out. It doesn't mean that it can't remind you of God. But it's a reminder of that's important there. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to delineate. And so that, that's where the, there's a few threads there in terms of like, who does it remind you of? And I think what I hear you saying is it can remind you of who you say God is or who your tradition says God is. or your, you know, That's where you correctly point out like you could be a Muslim on the other side of the world and go oh you know great is Allah that beautiful sunrise right or an atheist and go oh wow atoms and protons etc isn't that amazing or, or whatever the case might might be it's a tricky one right because like as I as I read this I want to be generous because I, I, because of the the person behind the post but when terminology is used somewhat interchangeably all the time, it's very hard to pinpoint. When someone says appreciating or experiencing the Holy Spirit, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what is meant by that. Unless it's very, very clear to start with that what they do not mean <laughs> is relational experience, which is where you know what where we're trying to shine the spotlight, right? And so if it is presenting, if it is over-presenting the argument as the, the cosmic wholeness, and, and that's another part of this that, that, that could be potentially teased out, is it, it, that's a very one-sided thing. To cultivate an awareness that God is everywhere essentially puts God on demand, on tap. 
and puts you in the driving seat. And that's if if it if it is anything relational, it's very abusive, manipulative, and unhealthy. But I also think it's a it's a what would the term be? An irreality, an unreality. It's not real. Because no relationship exists like that. No intimacy can exist with a system like that where I can walk down the street and I can feel, oh, a sunrise, and that does something to me, and I feel somewhat enlivened in some way it was an emotional response and i can go ah i have just decided that god is here in this moment and is being meaningful and present and intimate with me as opposed to it conjures up memories perhaps of a god that i experienced and i no longer experience or a god i experienced and i continue to or i never have and i've been told about or i've been taught is a certain thing or you know whatever all the threads sort of feed into that it's particularly difficult to figure out exactly what people are saying. It's hard enough for me to figure out what I'm trying to say, actually, at this point in time. I see a unity between the ambassadorial representation of God and a day-to-day, or at least a meaningful daily life kind of experience that isn't meeting-related or isn't representational in that way, ambassadorial. So I think in some senses to contrast the two is to go ooh, the charismatics have done something really wrong there to to say that, you know, so we don't do that. We just do the following in terms of daily life. And I go, no, actually, if it's the same God that's behaving and doing both, there's something amiss. We really want to give our attention to what's amiss there rather than create a binary between the two and write off one set of ways in which God might work, you know, or in which, in which God does actually work in many situations. But I think our commodification institutionalization or that kind of stuff gets it wrong mm. and the thing is we we don't want to make the mistake that the, that, that commodifying institutional kind of framework does <clears throat> we don't want to mis- make the mistake of getting that wrong because because slighting and disrespecting god in that environment carries over into slighting and disrespecting god in other environments i i'm loath to take words that that someone said to a group of people 2,000 odd years ago and say that that applies to me now because it doesn't if that's not my experience so so yes Jesus breathes the spirit on them and says lo I'm with you always to the end of the age those guys got fucked <laughs> they died <laughs> a long time ago many of them in horrible ways and for me to to easily transpose that onto me and say I'm I've always got the spirit all we're doing is perpetuating the same classic divide that we've had all along. We've got a mystagogic environment where we relate to the divine by faith and then we're saying we were born into this faith and this faith is our universal birthright and God's all around us so we don't need special experiences of God in order to validate us or say that God loves us. We can just go about our lives because the Spirit has always been with us. We've always known God by faith. So as long as we're seeing the goodness of life, we, we know God. And I, I say, hang on, the basic premise from which we're starting actually just is incorrect. Mm. And if we deconstruct that basic premise, we don't end up with the rest following. Because if we're not born into this faith, and if we're not born into having that spirit, we can't lay claim to have always had the spirit in our lives. And I think that's the problem that I have here. This this again relies on that same basic claims of faith of the institution going back 1,700 years. And I don't think that that claim is actually representative of the reality. 
you know, yes, God may be transcendent, God may be a universal presence, but that doesn't mean that we have a personal relationship with that universal presence and transcendent person. And by laying claim to being of a faith or being of a people, we don't have it either. So so I don't see how in a formulation of this we get away from it. I think, again, we abstract away from personhood and relational engagements to if you sing goodness in your life, if you see God, you know, God will speak to you in connecting with your, you know, your youngest child as an infant, you know, like that kind of stuff. I can, you know, it's too easy to transpose those as though those experiences are the experience of God as opposed to, God might come and connect to, to me. I mean, people talk about God talking to them when they're on the shitter <laughs> and when they're watching movies. Or, or, or like me, I had a tremendous experience of God the other day trying to put together my research proposal. I had a really powerful encounter with God as part of that. But I can't go, yeah, God's there and therefore I've got a right of something else. Or, you know, I think, I think, yeah, we're getting into tricky territory because I don't think that these kind of statements help us lead to a relational engagement with God. I think they help take us away from them. That's interesting. Because that's exactly what I'm trying to wrestle through. And go, does that take us away from it? Or does that just highlight a critical part of what it means? Let me pick my language carefully. To acknowledge that there is a God that is some sort of being and sometimes portrayed as force that exists on some incredibly huge scale that is somewhat unfathomable? And is it possible to wrestle that into some paradoxical tension with, now I'm stuck because I want to say the idea of the fact, and neither of those words are really what I'm reaching for, but the other facet of this being that God is a highly relational being that shows up as a person and the one part of that paradox is not saying that because it's saying other things by necessity. But this part of the paradox, where God is a highly relational being, is saying this and is not saying the other things by necessity. And somehow, and, and that's part of the question I'm asking myself, am I trying to fit two parts together that don't go and don't go in the non-paradoxical sense because they don't go? paradoxically, but that's the whole point of paradoxes. They somehow connect in their non-connectedness. But are they completely non-connected and one cannot wrestle them together and say, it is really important to understand that there is a big, big, big God out there. And it is equally important to understand that this big, big God shows up in very specific, personal, intimate ways and doesn't only show up once or twice in your life, is not brought forth and paraded by the institution in its music or its speaking forms, you know, so whatever the church services looks like, or its liturgy even, or, you know, that sort of things, and, and being very clear on understanding that, that the institution is not it's not got God locked in a cage somewhere and, and has complete control over who gets access and who doesn't. 
and also that intimacy is really possible because your life is not necessarily one or two, you know, big mountaintop experiences. And after that, you just have to go back onto the other side of the paradox and live in the big unfathomable God that you can never really get to know. That intimacy is possible because this relational being wants to relate, is actively seeking out people and relating to them in very specific, very personal ways that are not one-offs, that are, and when I say repeat, I don't necessarily mean the same moment repeated, but there is a returning to connection repeatedly over time. There's a longitudinal factor to this. It's not just once or twice or four times. It happens with varying amount in different ways, et cetera, like lots of stories. of like, there's a lot of variety, but there's also some similarity. This God keeps coming back, keeps appearing, keeps showing up, keeps speaking, keeps acting, and that there is an invitation to reciprocity within that, between the self, the human self, and the divine other, to forge something that is a truly dynamic interrelating to one another over time that tends towards intimacy and away from generality and the non-personal. And I'm trying to just wrestle with, do those two things link together in a paradox or do they pull away from each other? And we have to say to the one, no, you don't belong here in favor of the more relational picture. And that's why I've been playing with the idea of, you know, a human is a very, 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 very deep, dark pit. We have no idea how far down humanness goes if you take an individual. It's very hard to know when you dig through their consciousness, behind their consciousness, into their subconsciousness, and perhaps further into their unconsciousness. We have no idea how far down that goes. And so there's a hell of a lot of impersonal around a human being that manifests itself in personhood. And there's differing theories around sort of what all that is, but I'm just speaking very broad strokes along the idea of the human being is a hugely complex thing and is often impersonal within and of itself. And things emerge out of that, almost out of this primordial psychological soup that then manifests itself in personhood. And sometimes what you get in personhood and I want to be clear, I'm talking about the individual in and of themselves and the individual in community, i.e. people experiencing this individual. There's two different things kind of going on there, but, but it's difficult to keep track of that. What that person, how they manifest, how they experience themselves manifesting and how others sometimes can be a bit confusing because there are things that emanate from much deeper down that influence what this manifestation is like. But if you bump up against a human being, you will have a personal experience of them. They might give you their name. They might smack you. They might run away. They might smile at you. They might tell you what they like, what they don't like. They might start telling you the most fascinating things about their lives. They might invite you to do the same. And you will start to move from a complete stranger, impersonal-oriented you know, there's somebody out there and I've no idea who they are. And you bump up against them and they go from being this amorphous, unfathomable thing to manifesting in personhood. And you can't say that what you experience of their personhood is the totality of them because it's not. And we don't know how to get to the bottom of that. So to some extent, 
the human itself is this paradox of these connections. And that's why partly why I've been wrestling through, like, is that also a way to understand God? But it doesn't help to go, it's, uh, you know, in my mind, at least so far, it's only the one. It can only be the, the spirit is everywhere, hovering over the waters, will never leave you. Everything is an experience of God. I don't buy that at all. But I also can't shut off this idea of this this unfathomable essence of what it might what God might be. But that's also not necessarily our focus point. Our focus point is when you bump up against this thing that is initially impersonal and unknown, something happens and it becomes personal and presents itself personally. And we have this question of can that, what is intimacy? Can that lead to intimacy? How do we know that that's intimacy? And how might that differ from, potentially, if we get there, how might that differ from some of the other ways in which intimacy has been presented to us? The one thing that I have that I struggle with this as a, as a problem formulation, the Sari Bessie thing, is that you you could start both of those paragraphs, the beginning paragraph with one of the damaging things prophetic charismatic culture did was, and then you could go, one of the damaging things that this other thing does is to turn these standout good experiences into in life as though they are God experiences. So I think I think they're both problem formulations. So I think what's put forward as the alternative is not a solution to the problem that's being put forward. And that's so. Yes, I do agree. The charismatic culture stuff. Some of them are sus. There are some bad things in them. There's a lot of good as well. It's incomplete. But the complete thing isn't to go. There's a universal presence of God, and I've got to be appreciative. It's mm. the transition is to say that 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 somehow between neither of those are actually cultivating a relational spirituality that's to do with the personhood. That's to do with the the engaging the divine person. And placing that front and center in terms of intimacy and spirituality. I think that's about the clearest response I can have. <laughs> because because I agree. I, I remember God speaking to me about my son hopping in the bath. So yeah, there are those moments. We've got to we've got to recollect those moments and go with them. We've got to say that there's a balancing that balances out those front and center stage kind of experiences. But but somehow we can't we can't set the particular in a in a particular meeting environment against the universal as though as though the universal presence is is personal because I think in both situations I don't think the charismatics have intimacy with God in mind when they do that kind of, when they do that kind of thing and I think that this latter kind of spirituality also doesn't have intimacy with God in mind. Because intimacy is defined in a different way, right? So we could actually just say, well, what defines intimacy between people? What is that about? And is that actually being fulfilled in either of these environments? That's that's critical, yeah. Sorry, carry on. And, and I'd say, really, if we think about it, what is intimacy? There's a, a, a paper I referred to <laughs> that basically said that intimacy is a quality of relationships in which individuals have reciprocal feelings of trust and mutual closeness towards each other and are able to openly communicate thoughts and feelings with each other. And when I take a look at the charismatic environment, I don't see um, um, reciprocal feelings of trust and mutual closeness. 
certainly not from many people who have experienced that kind of stuff and go, hell no, I don't want that kind of stuff in my life or in my church. Is there an open communication towards and feelings with each other? No, it's one way. Often. Again, not not the same thing. When I take a look at the flip side and I take a look at what Bessie's putting on as the as the alternative, I've got to say, where's the feelings of of, of trust and mutual closeness? They aren't there. They're one directional. And it's not related to a person being present, it's relate it's it's indirect. And so, again, is there an open communication of the thoughts and feelings between persons? No, not in those environments as well. You know, that's like looking at art and appreciating it. That's not an engagement with the artist. And and I think I think that's really where I start thinking that I don't feel that the problem that we're wrestling with is actually being well formulated and well addressed out in the wild. You know, I quoted Timmerman, yeah, from a... 2009 paper if that is what intimacy is then intimacy with god is not what people are experiencing and it's not what we experience by adopting the spiritual disciplines either sure that's given me some other thoughts which which i'm not going to pursue now but we'll come back to in terms of whether this is a a three-angled paradox or whether it remains a two-angled paradox in my mind but the one side has shifted out now somehow a a triadox. <laughs> a triadox. Okay, so let's let's go with intimacy. What is intimacy? You've read that, right? Because I'm because if not, I'm going to ask you. Okay, great. I'd love to ask you to reread that to me in a second. What is intimacy? Intimacy. We got a handle on that. How does one then create that kind of intimacy? We just let's talk adult. Let's talk human to human to start with. But I think also what we're suggesting here, we presuppose that intimacy is highly possible and desirable between two humans, right? And if what it is is based on, you know, that quote that you share, which I think is a great starting point, absolutely. How is it detained? And then let's move forward and apply that exact, what is it? to the human and the divine, and let's chew through, okay, so how is it possible to have that? What does that look like? What does that mean? And there I'm going to ask you just to jump in and and just read that again, and we can pull out elements of that. Okay. So so the first thing is intimacy is a, a property of an interpersonal relationship between two persons. And in that relationship between two persons, the quality of that relationship means that there's reciprocal feelings of trust and mutual closeness between those two people. Hang on a sec. Let's give that to me again. So point one, there is a relationship that exists. It is a back and forth dynamic. That is the interpersonal between two people. Yeah. Right. Next point is quality. We're not just talking about whether it exists, how long it has existed. We're not talking about we're not talking about a, a, a claim to being part of something. We're talking about let's measure the essence of how well this is behaving as an interrelating of two people and as an outflow. By by quality we mean it that that means it's doing something high quality it's producing 
goods, not goods, it's producing things and producing like trying not to repeat myself, not quality. It's producing really beneficial things. And if it were low quality, we would be saying it's producing un, like non-beneficial things. We could say it tends towards healthy. And healthy is a good, you know, sort of ecosystemic idea, or it would be tended toward unhealthy. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then, so so recipro reciprocal feelings. Both people have feelings for each other. Good point. Three. Intimacy, intimacy is not one-sided. Intimacy is 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 reciprocal. And 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 how do what feelings are we look, looking to trust? Hang on a sec, just pause there a second again. So when we talk about this reciprocity, we're not talking about, oh, I had it there for a second. Both people are experiencing these feelings. We're not talking about reciprocity in terms of one person doing something towards another necessarily. We're actually talking about a direction of feeling. I experience an emotive response towards you. It may be because of what you're doing, but we're not talking about action level things, right? We're not talking about the one takes out the trash, the other one sweeps the house. We're talking about, I have an emotive level. It's an affectation towards you. I have a feeling towards you and both have the feels towards each other. Both parties trust each other. There's mutual closeness towards each other, and and both communicate thoughts and feelings with each other. Jeepers, there's a lot going on there. Wow. I think the key emphasis here is is, is reciprocal. In in the charismatic kind of culture and environment, it's not reciprocal. In the alternative environments that's put forward, again, it's not reciprocal. Because I'm if I look at a sunset and I go, yeah, I appreciate God. There's no sense that God is appreciating me back. No, no, no. Let's take that further and tell me if you agree with me. Okay. It's not necessarily just that there's no sense of that. That has very low importance. It has very low value. It's not necessary that God also appreciates you appreciating God in the sunset, right? That's to to my reading, that's almost what's on the table with the impersonal God is everywhere. And, and now I'm just going to take a step back from, you know, I, I don't want to beat up Sarah Bessie as the figurehead of all of this. That's not my intention. As a as a very general position, which is what I what I what I sort of scratch up against all the time, it's actually unimportant whether God has any feelings towards you or not. The only way that is positioned is you have feelings of closeness to God. And if we take that to the weirdest kind of permutation and put that in human to human, you could go, here I am in the bushes outside her house. I'm watching her get changed. I have such warm feelings towards her. It doesn't matter what she thinks about me. All that matters is that I'm stalking her and I feel things towards her. At a human-to-human -human level, like you know, we're way beyond crazy already. <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. If if that's you know, as the soon as you use. position it that way, I think most people, hopefully, would go, "Yeah, that's weird." 
But that's almost, I feel as though, without wanting to push it too hard, because that'd be unfair, but that's almost the idea. And that's what we're saying, right? It's not that we're not sure or whatever else. It doesn't matter what God thinks about me or feels about me. There is no reciprocity from that end in terms of an affectation on God's part towards me, right? In the way that things are defined, we don't even get there. Because if we're looking for reciprocal feelings of trust, <laughs> we don't get there at all. You know, um, in in general, to be in general, the the language of the feelings of trust and closeness aren't involved. Why? Because God is either God is so transcendent or God is so universally present that how can you feel close to God? Somehow, I've got to make myself feel close to God. I've got to rewire my mind to say, well, if God is universally present, then I'm never far from God. So therefore, I must feel close to God. I've actually got to rewire my circuitry to land up with that being good. Because it's not mutual closeness. I can't say I'm feeling mutually close to a presence that I experience feeling mutually close to me because I'm not experiencing that presence feeling close to me. Yeah, and I'm I'm with you. I'm I'm thinking about trust and just thinking because oh, I've got to try and get my thoughts in a row. I'm thinking about some personal experiences suddenly, and that's just muddying it a little bit for me. That I just want to, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But so when you talk about trust, people, I've, I've been surprised sometimes at people asking the question, saying, like, you know, I wonder whether God trusts me. And that points at the feeling, right, of God trusting one. And you can arrive there by perhaps doing some very any of the ways I try and position this sounds very ungenerous. That's not my intention. So I'm just going to put that out there as a disclaimer and then I'm going to go for it. <laughs> you can do some very clever footwork and you can analyze life and some situations, etc., and you can deduce that God trusts you. And that might even line up with God's feelings towards you. But again, we're wanting to differentiate. There's a difference between me arriving at that conclusion on my own and me arriving at that from an interrelationship, interrelational dynamic experience. And so the reason I was thinking about that, the, the personal stuff was like my dad growing up, my dad never ever told me that he was proud of me. I've had to piece that together after his death and think back and go, yeah, if I put this and this and this and this and this together, I imagine that, well, I imagine he wasn't very proud of me back then. <laughs> That's <what's> very <laughs> different. But I, as I think about myself now in a, you know, in a different phase in life, I piece things together and I go, yeah, I think he would be proud of me now. But I can't lie to myself and say, he is proud of me because I'm cobbling it together. I'm making my best guess, and I'm probably right. I'm like 99.9% sure. But there's a big difference between that and him looking me in the eyes and saying, I'm proud of you, son. Yes. Yeah. That is the interrelationship. That is the interrelating happening. And so is that kind of the the like the fancy footwork that you're talking about, the reorienting of reality in a way and going, well, I'm restructuring it from my perspective so that I can deduce that 
God trusts me or God feels close to me or whatever. Yeah, I think I think that's that that that's hundred percent represents what I what I what I'm saying. Yeah, because that that's precisely what happens. I have to look, you know, within the the Christian tradition, people look to a text. They look to text to affirm the universality of God's presence. They don't observe the universality of God's presence, and then and then one's got to fill in the blanks and and say you know, again, to draw on text to say that God loves me in a particular way as opposed to draw on a relational engagement and say that those words were spoken to me by someone. Again, the the rewiring is through a recollective process and a meditative process and a rewiring of one's mind and changing your behavior as you hit that internal security. But that's not the same as responding to a person or a person's response to you transforming you. I almost feel like I don't know. Perhaps it could be either of of each or both or, or none. Perhaps, but there's other options. But there, the actual feelings, like whatever God is feeling towards you, I don't think ever reaches the table. Often, it's unimportant. But yet the actual feelings of God towards you are important, important enough, hence the restructuring of the reality. Because it is quite important to me to know whether God trusts me or not. I, you know, as an idea, right? Like internally within myself to self, I think I would feel better if I felt like God felt God wanted to be close to me <laughs> or wanted to trust me or or said nice things about me or told me that that God was never going to leave me, for example. Those are very important to me, but they're reaching me in a relational format that that has zero importance because we're saying that the, that it's delivered in in other formats for a number of reasons and, and yeah, they're a lot more trustworthy in that they can be delivered far more regularly, et cetera, et cetera. But the relational side doesn't reach the table because there isn't a question of, have you said you trust me? Do you trust me? Perhaps you don't trust me. Are we growing in trust towards each other? Yeah, that's profound because there's a lot of people that I know that years down the line – they're still asking questions as to whether they can hear from God and step out and share what God says for other people in, in a way or hear from God meaningfully and take that into a situation and rely on it. And, and if, you, if you struggle at that level, that's not about a spiritual gifting or a, like a textual knowledge or anything like that. That's a basic relational trust issue. If you can't trust that you're hearing from God, you don't, you're not trusting God. And it's, it's not to say, well, trust is that therefore you hear from God and just be a crazy maniac. I think the difference is, is people lack, struggle to trust because they recognize that they're not hearing. So how can you say you trust what God has said when God hasn't spoken to you and you've got to draw on a text? I think we've got too many of those runarounds, those baits and switches going on in all which then get in the way from building trust. Because for reciprocity to be the case, two people must be recognizing and engaging each other. 
And to, to be trying to have a one-way relationship doesn't work. Even if you're drawing on a text that's got these statements like, lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age, or, you know, I'm universally present. Great, the text says it, <laughs> but I don't see it. I just want to be very, very clear and slice this quite thinly. So what I hear you talking about the one way, right? Then there's also the supposed two way. And the two sometimes mirror each other, they look very, very similar, but there's a little bit of a difference where, where I think the one would be more sort of like, well, yes, I'm reading the texts and I'm taking what I can out of it. And I feel better because this, you know, this God would say that they trust me, et cetera, et cetera, whatever, whatever. It's very much one-sided. It's one way. But I think there's also the supposed two-way where the person that's at its worst, you know, when, when people when 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 people have relationships with other people in their head. And I can talk about that quite confidently because <laughs> I did it for years and years and years and years. I still do it, but I remember a moment. It was a very crystal clear moment for me in my in my late mid to late twenties when it suddenly just crystallized in my mind and I realized I can't do this anymore. I can't continue to have a relationship with people in my head. But I hadn't until that point realized that I was filling both sides of the relationship. I was living in a heightened sense of anxiety with certain people and to some extent dialing down the anxiety and sometimes heightening it by trying to fill in both sides of the conversation. And so I was living as consciously as I can remember a two-way relationship. And that's what I was telling myself. This is going both ways, but I was filling in both ways. And for me, that's a tiny little distinction, but I think important between the person who goes, yes, I'm reading the text. Yes, I'm extracting, you know, that's one way. Then there's the supposed two-way. Then there's the actual two-way which when I hear you talk about all those little runarounds and everything, it's really important to be able to have that moment or moments or whatever. I remember how formative that was for me to go. So let me just jump across immediately and go from that. I need to stop reading the Bible and telling myself God is talking to me through the Bible. I need to stop driving down the road and going, oh, I'm noticing yellow cars today. God is speaking to me through the yellow cars. You know, I need to stop reading situations and going, oh, God is speaking to me here or God is doing something or whatever. It may or may not be the case. But if you, if you approach those situations in which you are managing both sides, even if it is the case, you exclude yourself from it actually being the case because you're managing both sides. You have to let go and allow the other side to manifest. But that's like the big gaping void, right? Because maybe nothing's there. <laughs> maybe nothing comes back out of the darkness. Maybe, you know, maybe it's your worst nightmare, whatever. Like if you say, hey, God, do you trust me? And God says, no. That's an unsettling thing to be told, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like, 
I think I've spoken about this before, but very briefly, I'll say when my when my last child was born, I had this this like deep moment with God in the in a hallway of a hospital, and I was pacing up and down and I was freaking out um, because my wife was on the other side of a wall and a closed door. She was in the operating theater. They were prepping her, and just a number of things led to that being a very very stressful moment. And I was berating God, "Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Why aren't you here? I don't think that you're here." You're not here, are you? And eventually God said, no, I'm not. And that was incredibly confronting because that's not what I wanted to hear. And I could have filled in the other side, which would have been the two-way, the false two-way. Or I could have just started, you know, marching up and down and shouting out scriptures and deciding already that it's just one way and I have complete control. So, you know, I'm not even pretending that there's another voice coming back. But for some reason in that moment, I was open and I was told, no, I'm not here. I'm not in the corridor with you. And for me, there was an upside to that because immediately there was that was only half a sentence. The other half of the sentence was, I'm in there with her. And I immediately was relieved. I remember just thinking, well, brilliant, because that's actually where I need you right now. <laughs> like It was huge. But the confrontation of being open to God saying something surprising or saying something different or whatever it might be well that's exactly what i experienced jumping back to years and years ago when i started to realize hang on i've got to stop filling in both sides of the conversation people can genuinely surprise you then you can surprise you they actually they say something outside of the pattern of what you've developed in your head or it opens up the opportunity for you to to ask them and explore what they're thinking or feeling yes 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 or, as was the case for me, <laughs> you break up and you go separate ways because I'd been filling in all the one side of things uh, in terms of that. And, and and I've had that a few times now, just realizing, oh, man, like I did all this maintenance here and, it, and it's just I convinced myself that there was a back and forth and there wasn't. Um, and so it, it clarifies on a number of different levels which is, you know, like sometimes helpful, sometimes not. I mean, it's a bunch of things there. So, but it's always helpful. That's sorry, I, I don't mean that. I mean, it can be painful, or it can be painful and then better, or painful and long term painful. It, it, my point is that you're not guaranteed an outcome, but what you are guaranteed is that it opens it up to be a free two way thing. Anyway, I just thought that there was a, an important distinction between between those two. Um, and important also for people to know where they where they fall there. I think there again, we, we you're, you're highlighting the difference between between almost presence and absence in a way, and, and the relationship to 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 you know back to that intimacy, faith as intimacy, intimacy as opposed to relational engagement leading towards intimacy. There being that distinction between the two. You need to say more about that because that's really, really, really good. And I think I, I think I know where you're going with that. But just keep keep going with that. Or I'm going to jump in. <laughs> <So go for laughs> it. I'm happy for you to jump in. Definitely, if you got something there, go. No, I I just love the idea that intimacy is something to aim for. It's a very simply the thought that comes to me. It's the difference between that and I think what's handed to you. And I'm just. I'm even realizing layers of this as I say this out loud now of my own church experience. What's handed to you is this idea that you already have this deep, intimate 
thing with this thing that you don't even know. <laughs> yes. And somehow you're living in this weird, unmatched reality where you know it's not real. And maybe that's part of the reason why people are forever trying to catch up and and be better in church. Because, oh, now you've given your life to Jesus. Now you have this intimate walk with Jesus. I'm sorry, with who? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, we know what that, and we know what that looks like. You're supposed to believe the following things and behave in the following way. <laughs> but that's why, but that's why, like I speak for myself, I was going to speak generally there. That's why I upgraded myself so quickly. I had to quickly go and learn all of those things because that knowledge had to catch up with my apparent reality, which was I had this hugely intimate walk with Jesus. And I had to go and read the Bible quickly. But I also didn't, and I'm realizing that now that's that's an interesting part of my earlier walk. I think that's why I didn't go and really read and search thoroughly. I just gave myself as quick an overview as I could and latched onto a couple of really important parts and then used that to tell everybody else just how intimate I was with God because I had to fill in that huge aching, aching gap that I didn't realize consciously but was just eating away at the center of me because I didn't have an intimate walk with Jesus. I didn't know who this God was. So I quickly upgraded that, got a bunch of knowledge, but it, but it was yeah, it just wasn't enough. And that's why I turned it on other people, I think, and started telling them who God was, because then it stopped me from having to look inside and ask myself whether I actually knew who God was, because at least I had the doctrines down and some of the Bible knowledge. So like, what more do you need, right? But it's premised on the idea that you start immediately in deep intimacy. And that's not true. And you must have encountered this when counseling people, people who had so much weighted expectations coming from a naive Christian background about marriage and the kind of intimacy that marriage would bring. And then they get married and that's not where they're starting from. <laughs> and they think they did something wrong. Yeah. No. No, that's the whole point. <laughs> I mean, you didn't build that intimacy before you got married, and by getting married, you don't you don't certainly you, you don't have that intimacy by virtue of changing your legal status. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What a crazy thought! Very crazy. <laughs> but I think I think that's that's again that's what that's what we're dealing with. I, I wonder in some ways if like the what the way forward is for us here because i think we we've highlighted the problem with we've highlighted a value for intimacy and we've highlighted some problems with intimacy certainly as we see them so i'm i'm wondering what the next step for us is both you know so so on one hand is this a conversation that we've got to drill down more in this context like i think we've well illustrated it so i'm I don't know if we've got to continue illustrating it or continue pursuing it. But on the other hand, it's the question of like, so so what are we saying? And I think that there's some language that we we get from one of the glorious heresies in Western spirituality. <laughs> and by heresies, I mean Spanish Inquisition level stuff, like literal. <laughs> it's with a group of people that I think were onto something. 
And, and that's, that's a group of people in the 17th century called the quietists who try to distinguish between acquired contemplation, where basically it's, it's saying that through practicing spirituality over decades, you acquire, you, you're formed. Character formation leads to Christ-likeness and therefore leads to being acceptable to God. So you, contemplation like has been fruitful, therefore you know God. <laughs> And, and they distinguish between that acquired contemplation and infused contemplation where they say, hang on, God seems to appear to some people in ways that we don't necessarily predict or control, but God arrives, draws near, then transforms people. And they could have spent 30 years working on themselves and not achieved that. And in an instant, God seems to have done something. So they try to come up with language for that. And I think that this 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 quote that you started with, again, is is still stuck in that, in the tension between those two, and 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 it similarly isn't resolving a long-standing problem. And the long-standing problem is what do we bring to the table in our pursuit of and our work towards knowing God, and what does God bring to the table in terms of arriving in person to engage us? And and somehow I think that there's a there's a next step in our conversation that we should have. I just don't have a clear enough formulation for that now. Well, that's why, dear listener, you'll have to tune in next week because I, I'm with you. I think that's the that's the logical next step. But, but I think it would be premature to rush into that now. I think, I think it'll be important for us to regroup and think some more. And and as much as these are open, happening, thinking conversations, I want to do it justice and and mull over that some more. Urban Mystic relies on your support to do the work that we do. Please consider making a regular or one-stop contribution via the, the link to PayPal in the show notes. Please don't forget to like this episode, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a comment on your favorite listening platform.